Well, please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. We have uh, been making our way through the book of Acts, and last week we looked at the end of Acts chapter 4 and the beginning of Acts chapter 5, and we began to talk about how the church has discipline. We've been seeing lots of things that are foundationally true of, of the church, of all churches, how the church has a witness, the church has the Holy Spirit, the church has divine power, the church has apostol apostolic authority, and we also now are seeing that the church has something called discipline, this process by which God deals with sin in his church. And in Acts chapter 5, at the beginning, we see a very dramatic way that God deals with sin within the church. Uh, there is a, a death, two deaths, of Ananias and Sapphira as their sin in the church is exposed, and God deals with sin in a very dramatic way, removing these people from the church in a very dramatic fashion. And so we're talking about, well, what, what does that look like for us? How do we deal with sin that we find within the church? How is sin removed? And as you turn there to 1 Corinthians 5, let me again just encourage you to be praying on a daily basis for those who do not know the Lord. I encouraged you a couple weeks ago to be praying for two or three people by name and just continue, would encourage you to continue to do that. Also would encourage you to be a part of a care group. I think that's really essential right now in the life of our church to be connected to other people in a, in a small group type of setting. Well, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, Acts chapter 5 describes this dramatic way in which God deals with, with sin in the church and the removal of these two individuals from church. In 1 Corinthians 5, we see that's a, a, a pattern of dealing with sin, not through the, the means that God does in Acts chapter 5, but People who are claiming to be believers, who are part of the church, and are in unrepentant sin, uh, they need to be dealt with. They, that sin needs to be dealt with in a way that is good for that individual, a way that is good for the church, a way that is good for the gospel witness to the world. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 5, and we see here a situation that Paul is aware of in the church in Corinth, where someone was engaged in immorality. In fact, this, this man is in a relationship with his stepmother. And Paul has some very strong words to say about that. 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though... Absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you need to go out of the world. 
But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And just a few verses in 2 Corinthians, a little also that... Uh, offer some encouragement here. For 2 Corinthians, Paul says this as he talks about someone who was caught in sin and has repented. He says, for such a one, this person who's repented, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Let's pray. Father, as we turn more closely to your word this morning, we ask that you would be particularly gracious to us. Lord, we recognize that there are are some in our church this morning who are are struggling with sin, and we pray that the process that you've given us to, to deal with sin and address sin would be helpful in the lives of your people this morning. I pray that you would help us to be gracious for those, with those who are in sin, and that you would convict, help us to be bold in inviting exhortation and in giving it in a godly and a gentle way. We pray for wisdom as we talk through these things. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So last week, I shared with you the story of, of Jesse James, Jesse James, the notorious outlaw, and how in 1680 and 1869, his church was very concerned about his, his sin and his lawless ways and how they had sent a delegation to, to confront him in his sin. And I, I share with you how these, these two deacons went to his mother's house, were not able to find him, and so they were unable to, to really talk with him and, and kind of the, maybe the relief that they felt as they were unable to do so. And then how he actually, I believe in September of 1869, walked into his church and resigned his membership, much to the relief of everyone. Now, the question I want us to think about this morning as a church is, did the church do the right thing in accepting that resignation? Or should they have said, look, you, you can't just resign your membership. We need, we need to talk with you. We need to talk with you about your sin, and we need to publicly kind of, we, well, first of all, we need to privately address it with you, and we want to tell you about the danger your soul is in if you continue this, this pattern, and then, and then we need to publicly talk about it as a church. Now, you might say, look, that doesn't really matter. The, the end result is the same. You have this outlaw. He's robbing banks, he's committing murder, and, and he's no longer part of the church. Does it matter if, if the church does it or if he does it? Does the process matter? And what I'm going to suggest to you this morning is that, that, yes, the process by which we deal with sin in the church does matter. That God has not just ordained the, the end result, but that God has given us some instructions about how we get there. And this, this whole process by which we deal with sin in the church is called church discipline, and that's kind of a phrase that we use in, in our common, common uh, language within the church. It's not necessarily the biblical phrase, but it, 
the word discipline is in some of the, the texts that deal with this. But we're, we're going to continue to talk about this process, this process of church discipline. And the, the reason we're going to talk about this is because I think it's very essential for us as a church, first of all, to be full of individuals who are willing to receive exhortation and correction. We all should desire to be people that others can approach when they see something in our life that is, that is not in conformity with what God would want us to do. I should be a person that other people in the church can approach and say, hey, look, this is what I'm seeing. Have you, have you thought about how this is disobedience to God? I, I, I want to be that type of person. And, and also, I want to be the type of person that has relationships within the church where I can go to people and say, look, this is, this is what I see in your life, and I'm, I love you, and, I'm, and we have this relationship, and so I, I want good things for you, and so I, I'm concerned about how, how you're, you're living, and I want you to have the joy of, of the Lord in your life, and this is not a path that's going to lead to that. I, I want Bethany Community Church, our, our goal is to be a church where this, this ty- these types of conversation can exist in a, in a very healthy and a loving way. And so we're continuing to talk about church discipline. And there are tons of questions that people might have about the, the how. Kind of last week was the why we would practice church discipline. This week is more kind of the how. And there's a, a book by Jonathan Lehman called Church Discipline, How the Church Protects the Name of Christ. It's called Church Discipline, a little tiny book, subtitled How the Church Protects the Name of Jesus. And he lists a, a lot of, of questions that you might have about kind of the, the how a church might practice church discipline. Some of the questions are related to what sorts of situations should lead to church discipline. What kind of sins? What about marrying an unbeliever or gossiping or criticizing church leaders or not attending the church or, or gluttony or, or gossip? Um, if, if gossip were a church discipline offense, um, there's a guy I know who'd be in a lot of trouble. I'll tell you about him later. Um, what sort, this other category of questions would be, what, what sorts of, of, of a process do we follow? What, what kind of a process do we follow? Do we, <clears throat> do we accept the resignation of someone who's in unrepentant sin? Do we follow a different process for a pastor or an elder? What about a non-member? How do you you see it sin in a non-member's life. Do you, do you discipline that person? And a third category of questions would be, okay, once a person has been removed from fellowship with the church, what do we do? How do we respond to them? Do we invite them to Thanksgiving dinner? Do we uh, it was just treat them like an unbeliever? What does that mean? What, what about a pastor? Can a, if we bring them through the process of restoration, can that pastor be put back into full-time ministry? What do we do with a person if they keep being divisive after remove, being removed from membership? Lots of questions. We won't get to all of them. I encourage you to look at that little book. I have some extra copies if you'd like one. But here's, remember the central idea that we began looking at last week. We saw as we were looking at Acts chapter 5, especially, end of 4 and the beginning of 5, we saw this. The church's removal of a person from fellowship is a gracious warning of God's judgment on sin and sinners. So the church's removal of a person from fellowship, that's the last stage of church discipline. It's a word we sometimes use to describe that as excommunication, but that's not necessarily a a biblical word, and and there may be some very negative connotations with that word, and so we're going to kind of unpack what we're talking about here a little better than just that word. But 
The church's removal of a person from fellowship is a gracious warning of God's judgment on sin and sinners. What happens in Acts chapter 5 is a warning of an ultimate judgment and removal from relationship with God. And what we want as a church is to practice church discipline in a biblical way so that God can do what he's going to do in our own lives and lives of people we love for his glory. So with that in mind, to kind of unpack a little bit more of what we were talking about last week, what I want to do in our time this morning is to kind of share eight thoughts regarding how Bethany Community Church can practice church discipline biblically. Okay, so here's eight thoughts about how we as a church can practice church discipline biblically. Number one, number one, we need to practice discipleship. If we're going to practice church discipline, we need to also be a church that practices discipleship. Think about it this way. Remember Colossians 1, 28, 29 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Paul says, For this I toil, working with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So the, the goal of a church is to engage in, in discipleship, pre- preparing to present each person mature in Christ. Uh, Paul would say this in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, fully equipped for every good work. So what is Scripture good for? It's good for, for teaching, here's what's right, reproof, here's what's wrong, for correction, here, here's how you get right, and for training in righteousness, here's, what you, here's how you stay right. As a church, we want to be a church that is practicing discipleship that is constantly engaged in helping people know how to love the Lord and live in obedience to him, both now and forever. Think about it as a, as a parent. Sometimes as a parent, especially when I was a parent of, of very young children, sometimes I would just step back from my parenting and realize that all of my interactions with my child over the last three days had been negative, or or 95% of our interactions had been negative. Don't do this. Stop doing this. Please don't do this. I will just give you whatever you want if you stop screaming. And just this constant correction, right? And in a a healthy parent-child relationship, what happens? There is certainly correction, but there's also positive instruction. Look, here's, here's here's how we live in joy as a family. Here's Here's some fun things we're just going to do together in order to enjoy the relationship that we have. If a church is only concerned about a person's spiritual life when they begin to sin, when they begin to step out of line, that is going to be a very unhealthy church. A church can't suddenly start saying, okay, we need to stop doing this, you need to start doing this, and that's not how... That's not how a church is going to practice church discipline biblically. If a church is going to practice church discipline biblically, first, they need to be a discipling church. Secondly, a church needs to teach sound theology. Confronting sin is going to sometimes sound very strange in certain contexts. Let's say you grew up in a church that never taught about sin and how we're sinners both by our nature and by our, our choices. You're in a church that never talked about holiness. In fact, a few years ago, I 
the, the family and I went to a church, and, and the pastor was talking about evangelism, and, and the pastor said this, he, said, he kind of talked about evangelism, he says, evangelism is Christians doing nice things for other people. And for example, the pastor said, you can wash someone's car, and that's doing evangelism. And if you do enough nice things for people, this, this is really what, what he communicated. He said, if you do en- enough nice things for people, someday God is going to look at you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have done the work of an evangelist. Now, um, imagine that's the church culture that you've grown up in, the church context in which you've, you've heard the gospel presented. Uh, the church never talked about holiness. The church never talked about the need to repent of sin. The church never talked about the need for a Savior to deliver us from our sins, to die for our sins, to take the penalty for our sins for us, and to present us before God with all of his righteousness. Now, if you don't understand any of those things, then the idea of church discipline is going to sound very strange. Your, your conception of God is going to be, okay, God is this, this being, and his desire, we're, we're sinners, we've, we've messed up, but God's desire is to do things for me, to, to be nice to me, and to, to affirm me. There, there's no understanding of, of how I've offended the holiness of God. There's no understanding of the necessity of the cross. And so there's no understanding of, okay, I, I really, God has, God has saved me from my sins so that I can pursue holiness. I can be sanctified. I can be devoted to his glory. If I don't understand the seriousness of sin, I, I won't understand the necessity of church discipline. I'm going to say, why, why is the church so harsh? If we have a basic conception of ourselves as nice people, and God as a being who's not necessarily holy, not devoted to his glory, but is simply about doing nice things, it's going to seem like a terrible thing to, to potentially discourage people by talking with them about their sin. So to practice biblical church discipline, we need to practice discipleship, and we need to teach sound theology. Last month, I celebrated 20 years of, of ministry at Bethany Churches, and so there have been some of you that I've been working with for, for 20 years, ministering with for, for 20 years. And if, if I was a pastor at a new church where I hadn't had a 20 years of, of ministry with other people, I wouldn't start by addressing church discipline, right? <laughs> I would start by talking about God and His holiness. We'd, we'd start by teaching sound theology. A third thing that a church that's going to practice biblical church discipline needs to do is to implement biblical church membership. To implement biblical church membership. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says some really strong words. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus responds to Peter's profession, and he he says this in Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, your rock, and and on on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And, and what is Jesus saying there? He's saying, look, um, those who, are, who, who rightly understand who I am are going to profess who I am. And that's not going to be something that human beings reveal to one another ultimately, but it's, it's God who allows us to understand this. And upon that 
that confession, and, and even upon the authority that God has given the one making that confession, God is going to build his church. And he says, I give the, the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. So is, is you're in agreement with what I'm saying, what you say is, is, is binding. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, that phrase, binding and loosing, is a phrase that also was used in this first century culture to describe the authority of, of rabbis. Rabbis had the ability, the authority, to, to, to bind and to loose. So there's, here's this rabbinic teaching, or there's this law, and here's this person, and so the rabbis could say, yes, this law applies to you in this context, or the rabbi could say, no, this law does not apply to you in this context. They had this, this authority that they saw as, as being given to them by God, and what Jesus is saying, look, upon this confession that I'm the, the Christ, the Son of the, the living God, you have the authority to affirm those as my representatives. We see, based upon the context of what all is happening here in Matthew, you have the authority to affirm a person's confession of me as Christ, or you have the authority to, to, uh, to cast doubt on a person's confession of me as Christ. I think what Jesus is saying here is the church has the authority to recognize who is and who isn't considered a believer. They're, they're not making the decision that you are a believer or not, but they're saying, okay, we, we recognize your profession or we don't recognize your profession of faith. So if a church is going to practice church discipline, it first of all needs to practice biblical church membership. Here's what our bylaws say about what church membership is. When we welcome someone into membership at Bethany Community Church, we are publicly, we're publicly affirming his or her profession of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Therefore, church membership is the church affirming a person's profession of faith and committing to love and shepherd that person. So as we welcome a person into membership, the church, all of us are saying we're recognizing the validity of that profession. We see a, a life that's consistent with a profession of faith, and we're committing to love and shepherd that person. And it's also that person committing together with the church to love its people, to submit to its authority where appropriate, and use his or her spiritual gifts to care for the flock. So, both the church and the individuals who practice church bib membership biblically, we're saying, we, we recognize the validity of your testimony. We're, we're affirming that. We're saying we, we believe that that is true based on all the evidence that we have. And the, the member is saying, okay, I am I, committing to, to join into fellowship with you and to, to follow the Lord as is consistent with that profession. The church is saying these are representatives of the king and his kingdom. I, was, I mentioned before this book, God's Indwelling Presence by, by uh, Jim Hamilton. And here's what Jim Hamilton writes. He, he talks about God's indwelling presence and, the, and how all believers have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And then he at the very end of the book, talks about some applications. And, and he's a Southern Baptist. He's a professor at a Southern Baptist seminary. And so he has some words of critique for the Southern Baptist churches, but you can apply these beyond just Southern Baptist. He says this. He says, Unfortunately, it's more difficult to get on a city bus than it is to join most Southern Baptist churches. This circumstance makes church discipline all but impossible. Unless a person is born again, that is, born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. 
Does this not imply that those who have not been born again should not be admitted to church membership? I have been in Southern Baptist churches where an absolute stranger can walk down the aisle, profess to believe, and to have undergone believer's baptism and immediately be admitted to church membership. I know a person who joined a Southern Baptist church because only members could have their weddings in that church. This individual had no intention of participating in the life of the church, but it was the prettiest church in town, so the person jumped the hurdle, became a member, and got the desired wedding with no questions asked. Church membership is meaningless under such conditions. That's, again, Jim Hamilton. So we, we don't practice church discipline on non-members because we've never affirmed the gospel testimony of members. At Bethany Community Church, to, to practice church discipline, to, do, to deal with sin as, as we need to, and especially that last step of dealing with sin and church discipline and removing that person from fellowship, we first need to have affirmed membership. Say, so, yeah, we, we recognize you as a person who knows and loves the Lord from best that we can see. There's a significance of what we're affirming when we welcome a person into membership. Here's, here's the fourth thing for us to practice church discipline biblically. We need to understand the, the purposes of church discipline. So we understand the significance of church membership. We also need to understand the purposes of church discipline. We talked about this last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But here's again, quoting from our, our church bylaws. If, if membership is the church's public affirmation of a person's profession of faith, church discipline is the public removal of that affirmation. In church discipline, the church is saying it can no longer affirm a person's testimony due to his or her persistent refusal to live in a manner consistent with the profession of faith in Jesus Christ. That's church discipline, the last stage of what we call church discipline. Now, let's, let's move on. Let's talk about, then, the, the biblical process of confronting specific sins. Number five, the fifth thing a church needs to do is, is follow a biblical process when confronting specific sins. Now, the passage we go to most frequently is Matthew 18, and I'm going to read from that. Now, there are other passages that help us understand Matthew 18 more fully. We understand Matthew 18 is not a checklist. It's not something we say, okay, these are the hoops we have to do through, have to jump through to deal with this person. So we've jumped through these hoops. Now we can deal with them. There's not a specific timeline that's laid out here in Matthew 18. But here, here's what Matthew 18 says. And we're going to kind of look at this passage more here over the next few minutes. Here's what Matthew 18 says. If your brother, this is beginning in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then again, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So what do we see about this, this biblical process? Let, let me walk through a couple things here. First of all, we notice that there is a, a private confrontation of sin. That's that's the first part of this biblical process. There's a private confrontation of sin. Now, you might say, well, 
how do I go about doing that? What, what sins do I c- confront? Here, here's, here's a couple categories to think of. There are some sins that we're going to see and not necessarily confront in a person every time we see them. Maybe we don't have enough details, or maybe it's an, an attitude like pride, it's kind of vague, it's subjective, and it just wouldn't be helpful to, to bring that up every time we suspect we see that in someone's life. Or, or maybe it's, it's small, it's, it's small not in the sense that it's not serious, but it's not indicative of a, of a lifestyle. Or, or maybe, it's, maybe you're working with someone and you're, you're dealing with about five different issues and there's this other issue, maybe you're dealing with someone's anger and they're really struggling with anger, and as you're kind of working through that, you see that they have also, um, maybe, they, maybe they say a bad word, there's some sort of ungracious speech, you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm just not, that's not what I'm going to deal with right now because there's, there's other things we're, we're talking through and I'm seeing fruit in their life and I, I don't want to discourage them. The bottom line is it's not, we make the determination, this isn't a Matthew 18 issue, it's a, it's a 1 Peter 4.8 issue. 1 Peter 4.8 says that love covers a multitude of sins. And so I'm, I'm not going to deal with this sin in terms of confrontation not because I'm fearful of confronting over sin, but because it, it's just not a loving thing to do in this moment. It's, it's a husband. It's a husband saying, you know, my, my wife just spoke kind of an unkind word to me, but this isn't indicative of her relationship. She's, she's very stressed right now because of the situation going on in here, and I don't, I'm going to trust that this was not the fruit of a heart of, of unbelief. It's not indicative of how she really feels. I see in a person a general alignment with gospel growth, and there's no need to confront every failing. That's, that's not what we're talking about right here. So that, that's where some sins are going to fall. But there's another category of, of sin. And in the second category, these, these are serious sins that we encounter in the life of a believer that need to be responded to and addressed so that repentance can occur. Now, the presence of sin in someone's life, let's be very clear, should not shock us. The, the presence of serious sin in the life of a believer should not shock us. There are very grievous things that godly people do, and we mourn that reality, right? Married couples, married couples at times are going to argue we're going to, to be aware of, of married couples who say very sinful and hurtful things to one another, and you, you see it happen, you see it spill out, and, and you're not shocked by that, but you're going to say something. Parents are going to lose their temper with their children. They're going to confess this to you, and you're not going to minimize it. You're not going to say, ah, you know, kids, they are so annoying, are you, right? No, you're, you're not going to minimize it, but you're not going to be shocked by it. You said what to your child? I'm just shocked that sin could exist in your heart. People are going to talk to you and say, look, um, you know, I'm struggling with this, this sexual temptation. What's our response going to be? We're not going to say, hey, no big deal. Who cares? Everybody struggles. No, you're going to say, look, that has no life in the no place in the life of a believer, but you're not going to say that, that that shocks me. I can't believe that you're capable of such a thing. There's that scene in, in Casablanca, that, that old movie where the, the, the prefect, the chief of police there is, is in Rick's cafe, and, and he needs an excuse to shut down the cafe, and so he, he starts sh- telling people they have to leave, and uh, Rick, Humphrey Bogart, comes up to him and says, why are you, why are you shutting down the place? And the chief of police says, I'm shocked shocked to find out that gambling is going on in this place. And as he says that, a guy walks up to him and says, here, you're winning this, sir. And so thank you very much. You know. We're not hypocrites, right, as Christians, hopefully. 
We're not going to, as we see sin in each other's life, act, act shocked, like we can't believe that we're, you're capable of that. But what we're going to do, and this is important, we're going to say, hey, look, this, this is not consistent with your profession of faith. Do, do you agree with that? Let's, let's talk through this. Let's, let's, as Hebrews talks about, let's, let's, let's help you walk this path of obedience. So we're going to confront and we're going to deal with that. Now there's a third category. And some sin is going to give us such serious concern about the salvation of a person who, who claims to have been a believer that we're going to not just confront them on it, but we're going to have to bring others into the process as well and we're going to go on to the next step. You say, well, what distinguishes this? What's the difference between a category two and a category three sin? Well, a couple things. This sin is, is willful rebellion. So in other words, there's a, I, I'm aware of what God's word says, and, and you've talked to me about it, and, and I don't care. I, I'm willful in my desire to continue to do this. This isn't ignorance. This isn't something that I am unaware of. I'm, I'm willfully choosing to do this. And there's also another aspect of this. It's, it's unrepentant. So I've I've been told that this is a wrong way to talk to my wife, and, and I don't care. This is a wrong way to treat her. I, yeah, maybe, but I'm going to keep doing it. And so there's a determination made that this is a, a sin in which a person is not acknowledging his sin and is not receiving correction and trying to turn from it. Now, before I continue, let me just encourage you with this. Um, If people aren't coming to you regularly and exhorting you to walk in obedience to God, you need to ask why that is. There's a possibility that you've been, uh, you've not allowed yourself to be approachable. It might be they don't have people that are, that are close enough to you that are aware of what's going on in your life. Now, maybe you've reached the, the stage of sanctification where, you know, on a, an average month, you're just not going to sin at all. If so, I'd love to talk with you. I'd like to confront you about your arrogance. But, um, but maybe, you know, uh, let's, not, let's not put anything outside the possibility of God's sanctifying work. Right? But my, my point is, if, if, if you're not there and people aren't talking to you, you need to ask why that is encourage you to have relationships and pursue relationships in which these conversations can, can exist for your, for your own spiritual benefit. Okay, the next part of the process here of, that, that Paul, that uh, we, we see laid out by Jesus is there's a, there's a confrontation with one or two others. So the other people come and say, hey, look, this is what we're seeing. Here's, a, here's the sin. Here's what God's word says. You've refused to turn from it. We want to encourage you to do so. Then there's the next part of the process. If the person still doesn't turn, they involve church leadership. And then at this point, leaders are helping judge, okay, what's going on here? Can we still as a church affirm the testimony of this one who is professing to be a believer? And Lehman in his book on church discipline gives some good examples of questions a church might be asking, church leadership. How long has this person been a Christian? Have they been taught well? Do they understand why this is sin? Are, are, they, are they grieved over their sin, or are they just irritated that people have found it out? Are they willing to receive counsel on how to fight the sin? Was this person led into sin by others? Have they been forthcoming about the sin, or are they continuing to conceal it? Are they defensive or thankful that people are speaking in their life? And then at some point, if there still is, 
a determination made that this person is not showing the fruit of the Spirit in their life in terms of willingness to repent from sin, not perfection, but a willingness to acknowledge and turn from sin, you tell it to the church. Now, the time between these steps can be incredibly lengthy, or it can be very short. We've been in situations at a church where we have waited months and months between each of the steps, years between the beginning and the end. Sometimes things have happened very quickly over, over a period of, of days or, or weeks. We prioritize people over some sort of policy, right? But eventually, the, the step is to tell it to the church. The church prays. Those who have a relationship confront that person. And then the last stage is to remove a person from membership. It's a picture of judgment, a picture of, of God's future judgment. And the church is saying, look, this is what awaits you unless you turn. Let me go through the last few steps here, the last three three thoughts about practicing biblical church discipline kind of quickly here. Number six, you treat former members as unbelievers you love. Okay, so a person comes to this last phase of church discipline, they're removed from church discipline, What, what do you do now? You treat the person who's been removed from membership as an unbeliever, not like a person with COVID-19, right? You engage in relationship with them as is appropriate. You want to avoid those things are going to seem to affirm that you think, still think that they're believers, so you're not going to have a, a prayer meeting with them. You're not going to participate in communion with them, but you are going to continue a, a relationship with them as, as appropriate. Number seven, you want to pursue and pray for restoration. We looked at those verses in 2 Corinthians 2, and you just see Paul's joy as he affirms this, this brother's readmittance into the church. And that's what we do as well. We enter into this, this not with a desire for uh, punishment or a desire to harm a person, but our ultimately our desire for a person who's been placed on church discipline would be to be restored. Then number eight, how does a church practice biblical church discipline? Number, number eight, we all individually receive God's discipline, we repent, and we return. In other words, all of us are at some stage almost every, every month, certainly every year, some sort of stage in that, that process of church discipline. Other, either other people are saying, look, Here's, here's what I'm seeing in your life, or, or sometimes it gets even more serious. But as people come to us and we, and we see what they're confronting us on, there's a willingness, look, I want to receive God's discipline at its earliest stages to prevent God's discipline at later stages. And I would just say, you know, I, I know that there are people uh, we have placed on church discipline. It is, by God's grace, not very frequent, but it, it has happened. And if you've been placed on church discipline by, by Bethany Community Church or by another church and you're just listening to this, please know that our, our prayer is, is for your restoration. For those who've been placed on church discipline by Bethany Community Church, I, I, I pray for you regularly. I, I love you and I would desire for you to come back and to fellowship with the church. I would love to be able to affirm your testimony once again as you, place your, as you publicly profess your faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and commit to walking into obedience with him. You know, we want to be careful of romanticizing the early church. Sometimes people say, boy, I wish we were just like the early church. I wish we were just like the early church. I wish we'd get back to the early church. We are like the early church in a lot of ways. 
and it's not all good. They had a problem with sin as well as we do. And over and over, the New Testament tells us, deal with sin, deal with sin. For the sake of the person who's sinning, deal with sin. For the sake of the holiness of the church, deal with sin. For the sake of the gospel testimony of the church to the world, deal with sin. As we do so now, as we deal with sin now, it's a gracious warning of God on his future judgment on both sin and sinners. And our desire would be that we would experience God's grace now, trusting in his son Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, for our forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kind discipline on your sons and daughters whom you love. We pray that we would receive this discipline now, that the discipline we receive now would, would indicate that we are indeed, and in, in, in fact, in truth, your sons and daughters. Help us to receive that discipline that you have granted to us. And we pray that we would practice this discipline in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. We pray that for those who are struggling with sin, perhaps uh, overwhelmed this morning with sin, we pray that you would grant them the, the peace and joy of true and biblical repentance. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.